Well, hello, oddballs. It's your host, Bobby. And your co-host, Lexi. And this is Oddities Oddities on Elm Street. Welcome back. Or if you're new. Welcome. Welcome. Episode 23. I almost said 22. That was last week. Bente tres. (laughs) You'll hear this. Week 16. Yay! Oh my gosh. I wanted to say that if you haven't listened to last week's episode, we did Listener Tales, finally. So, freaking go back and listen to it. Yeah, and if you have, you know, a story that you want to share with us. Or two. Or three. And if you're going to end it by saying, let me know if you want to hear the rest or the others. The answer is yes. Yes, we do. (laughs) So, you know what? You just skip that step and just go right into the other. At story. least one of those people has already sent in the rest of their stories. Julia? No. Kaylee. Kaylee. I believe it's Kaylee. Oh, Kaylee. So, Love you. Love yeah. That. Anyways, if you have some stories to share with us, please send it to listenertales at gmail.com. Rochelle said that I freaked her out. Why? Because you were calling her. Because I summoning her, yeah. Because I was like, in I was where she was, but I wasn't talking to her, I was kind of, kind of far away. <laughs> all of a sudden, that would be trippy. All of a sudden, she just like looks over at me <laughs> and she like follows me. She's like, You scared the crap out of me. <laughs> You're talking to me in real time, yeah. Um, so I did get some feedback on. The morbid tidbits. What did they say? Well, the people that had stuff to say about it said good things. Well, that's so good. That's lovely. And I appreciate them very much. So I'm going to keep doing them. <laughs> yeah, what you got this week? Uh, so this one is a little... It's, it's a little tiny true crime story. It's about a Colorado dentist that has been arrested for allegedly killing his wife by poisoning her protein shakes. He, Did this happen recently? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I'm That's I'm just not hearing about it. Usually it's women who use poisoning. That's a good point. I actually never I never realized that, but now yeah. that you're saying it, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah. But what he I mean what he did makes sense because of his profession. And, like, I'll get into it, but um, he basically, you know, he did this because he had a mistress. He mm. wanted to start a new life with so her. So, heaven forbid, just get like, a divorce. Getting a, right. Right. That's, nah, that's too easy. Kill her. Yeah. Wow. So, wow, wow, wow. he started poisoning these protein shakes, which she drinks, like, every morning, with arsenic. <laughs> what? And what's crazy is that she texted his wife, Angela, texted him on March 6th saying, I feel drugged. And he responds by saying, quote, just for the record, I didn't drug you. (sighs) So the arsenic did not kill her. So what he did is decided to order potassium cyanide to his dental office that's why I said it makes sense because of his profession. Yep, yep, yep. He told the supplier that he needed it for 
a surgery. And so after he ordered it, he told the manager not to open it when the box came in. But another employee opened it anyways. And he told that employee that there was a ring in the box. But then the, the employee was like, uh, That's no ring. Not, not really. So he contacted the husband. His name is James. And he said, like, I know what's really inside the box. And then James was like, mm, my wife, she asked me to do it. She wanted the cyanide for herself. <laughs> it doesn't get any stupider. So yeah, up until that point, the wife, Angela, she'd already went to the hospital feeling ill. Like she's been drugged. Yeah. And then she's like unknowingly ingesting the cyanide that was put in her protein shakes. She goes to the hospital two more times before her final visit on March 15th. And on that visit, she complained of severe headaches and dizziness. She suffered a seizure. She was declared brain dead and placed on life support before ultimately passing away on March 18th. Oh my. Yeah. Oh my god. This fucking dumbass, though. Listen to this. He Googles. <laughs> it's fucking Google. He Googles to see if arsenic shows up on an autopsy. Uh, he also watched a YouTube video called Top 5 Undetectable Poisons That Show No Sign of Foul Play. And they found receipts in his email showing his proof of purchase of these different poisons. And then they find these intimate emails with an orthodontist from Texas. And while his wife, Angela, is dying in the hospital on life support, he flies his mistress to Colorado to come visit him. While she's in the hospital? While she's in the hospital dying. on life support. So. Are you fucking serious? Pfft. 100% serious, yeah. And does this bitch know what's going on? I don't know. And I that's what I want to know. I'm sure we'll learn more with the trial. Because mm -hmm. this just happened, like, three weeks ago. Um, And they had, they had six children together. Six? Six children. Yeah. So. Oh. He is, like, the most literal piece of human garbage I've ever heard of. So, fuck that guy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm definitely curious to see, like, more of the details yeah. when they do come out. Mm hmm So I'll have to keep an eye out for that. Please do. This like damn cord, I'm telling you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, do, do we know how old the kids are? Like, are there some of them that are old enough to be like, why the fuck isn't dad here? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. There's just, that's... I don't know. Crazy. It's very fucked up. And I'm also very curious to see what the mistress... Knows. Knows and, like, is she still with him? Or did she find out and it's like, bye? 
I don't know. I'm, well, I mean, she had to have found out he was arrested with right, but charges like, of murder, but like... But did she leave him at that point? Yeah. I don't know. That's what I want to know. Right. I hope she fucking did. Right? Because if not, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> but th- there are those people. Mm-hmm. Like, if someone can write love letters to Richard Ramirez, like, anything's Ugh. possible. Throw up in my mouth. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Yeah, so that kind of leads us into our topic for today. It does. It really does connect well. Yeah. I'm impressed. Because we're also talking about a true crime topic for all of our true crime connoisseurs. Yeah. yeah. Still need to make those fucking t-shirts, man. I'll just get it tattooed <laughs> on my chest. Please do. <laughs> at a at 100,000 streams. <laughs> You got it. Oh, God. That would be hilarious. So, I've been really wanting to talk about this case, though, because it's more local to me than Ashley Young's case was. Yeah. Which was very local already, but this is, like, Like, right in my backyard. Oh, my word, yeah. So, on August 5th, 2006, Renee Pagel was found in a pool of blood by her father in her Rockford, Michigan home. Her murder would go cold for 14 years. Renee Pagel was a 41-year-old mother of three. She worked as a teacher at Kent Career Technical Center, Mm -hmm. KCTC. I did not know that that's what that stood for, but Mm -hmm. we just call it KCTC. Yep. Yep. She was also a nurse practitioner, and I think that she even worked out of my elementary school at one point while I was going to school there. Really? I knew, I knew of her. Dang. So, yeah. Renee was known by her friends and family as a hero. According to them, her passion was saving the underdog, (laughs) and her actions proved that to be true. When Renee found out that her student's father was suffering from kidney failure... She selflessly donated one of her kidneys to him, even though he was a complete stranger to her. Like, let's just stop for a second. We do not deserve... No. ...humans like that. We don't. Like, absolute angel. She's too good for this world. So pure. Yeah. So pure. And just, like, she's always, like, rooting for the underdog. Mm Mm-hmm. Like... I love that. And to give your fucking kidney... That's, like, that's huge. Like, that's that is something people won't even do for their own loved ones. Right. Let alone a stranger. Right. But it's something that she felt strongly about because she lost her mother in that way due to kidney failure. So, and it's crazy, though, because it's like knowing what she would do for a stranger, imagine how amazing of like a mother and a friend she would have been. Her friend Chris Crandall said, quote, she loved her children fiercely. She loved them so, so much. Chris also told Crime Watch Daily that Renee was supposed to go with a friend of theirs to a craft show, but she never showed up. Another friend named Joyce recalled that she had received a disturbing call from Renee the night before she was supposed to be at this craft show. Joyce said, quote, she had begged me to spend the night with her, which was an odd request. I couldn't because I had a commitment the next day, on a Saturday. 
all day and I absolutely could not, end quote. That just sucks. imagine I how she feels. No, I can't. Oh my god. That. So after multiple unanswered phone calls from her friends and family, Renee's father went to check on her. And that's when her body was discovered. She had been stabbed so many times, it left her extremely disfigured. Like almost over 50 times. Yes. That's a that is a lot. She was unrecognizable. And then she was also found with a cloth jammed inside of her mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Her poor father had to find her that way. That's... Ugh, I don't even have words. So, when Renee was found dead while still recovering from her kidney donation surgery, the community was shocked... In fact, when her father found her, she was still in her bed, as was required to heal from this procedure. It had only been five days. She was vulnerable. When police arrived on scene, her father told them that she was too weak to even get out of bed properly. And although she had little physical advantage of defending herself, she still tried. Her defensive wound suggested that she put up a hell of a fight. So much so that some of her fingers were nearly severed from her hands. And the the wounds on her feet, too. Mm-hmm. Like, she's obviously really trying. Yeah. Oh, that puts a picture in my head mm-hmm. that I don't like to imagine. Mm-hmm. It was obvious that, like, this was a crime of passion. Like you said, she'd been stabbed more than 50 times, mostly in the face and like the That's upper body. Fucked. Yeah. So whoever had done this was so angry, they managed to pierce her skull with the blade of the knife. Oh my god. Which is like really fucking hard to do. You have to be in a fit of rage to be able to do that to a human being. Wow. I didn't know that. When officers arrived on the scene, they noticed that Renee was tangled in her bedding, wearing nothing but a nightshirt, which suggested to them that she had been brutally attacked while she slept. Although Renee's body lay in a pool of blood, there was no blood tracked around the house or back to the door. There was no sign of forced entry, and nothing of value was missing. There was, like, even cash left out on the bedside table. Yeah, I saw, like, just... Absolutely nothing was taken. Yeah. Not even the very out there wad of cash. Right. There was also no sign of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And no murder weapon was found on the scene. Mm -hmm. So, from the looks of it, it was a very, very violent murder. Almost like it was personal. For the people who knew Renee, there was little mystery here. Only one person could be capable of her gruesome murder. My question was, when are they going to arrest Mike, said Renee's friend Joyce. Renee's friends say that when it came to the father of her children, Michael, things were very complicated. And after a few years of marriage, these disparities became more and more noticeable. 
Renee's friend Joyce recalls a fight that took place about two years after the birth of their twins. She said that that was the first night that Renee had actually spent the night at her house, but it wouldn't be the last. Joyce also talked about how her and Renee spoke on the phone every single day and that the two of them talked at length about her relationship with Michael. She said, quote, Renee was a little concerned that he had some anger issues. She actually sent him to a physician to have his testosterone checked. Wow. Because she felt like it was not in balance and perhaps that was driving his anger. That's, that's huge. That's when you know it's really bad. Like, Like, to, like, yeah, you have anger issues, like, to send him to get his testosterone checked? I've never heard of that. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is like, that's when you know it's, like, a real problem. like, Like, really concerning. Yes. So, Joyce told Crime Watch Daily that things began to get weird when Renee, quote, discovered that he was taping her phone conversations. Which I still don't know what that's about. Like, what was he trying to catch? I feel like he was just gathering evidence for the divorce, which I'll talk about in a minute. I guess, but it's still... But he has nothing on her, I mean. What, you, you want to record her talking to her friend about how fucking angry, angry you, you are? are? Right. Yeah, I okay. don't know. By all means, go ahead. Yeah, do you think that's going to do you a favor? Um. So yeah, after learning that, Joyce told Renee that what Michael was doing was really disturbing and she was concerned for her friend. But it's actually Michael who files for divorce. According to Renee's friend Chris, he served her with divorce papers sometime in March and moved out of their shared home in the summer. But the couple's problems didn't exactly go away when Michael moved out. Now, you may be asking, why would he do that? Like, what is his motive? He's already filed for divorce. Why not just let it be over? Well, Michael wanted full custody of their children, and there was absolutely no way that Renee was going to allow that to happen. Not only that, but he wanted the house, and he wanted Renee to have to pay him alimony. It's important to note that Michael didn't really have, like, a steady job. I think he was just working, like, part-time jobs here and there. Um, But he was very insistent on being a stay-at-home parent. Mm Mm-hmm. So I personally think that he probably wanted full custody of the children just so that he could get that alimony because he requested $2,000 a month. Yeah. So I think that that was like his plan. Yeah. Makes, I mean, I don't know. Makes I don't sense. Say it makes sense, but right. But it, it does, yeah. you know? Um, I just feel like there's intention behind everything he's trying to do. Like, malicious yeah intention yeah yeah so during their divorce hearing the judge i think this is so funny the judge actually told michael to get a job yeah like love a good judge (laughs) i know i love this man the judge also ruled that michael and renee would be splitting custody with renee having primary custody of their children and that michael would have to pay her alimony Hmm. <laughs> Looks like things aren't quite working out as he had hoped. Yeah. So obviously that sent him into a spiral. 
and Rene was genuinely scared of what he might do. Mm -hmm. According to a Kent County Sheriff sergeant, Rene was worried that he would come to the hospital and do something to her while she was donating her kidney. And another account from Renee's friend Chris states that on the night Renee went to see her kids at Michael's house, which was, like, pretty quickly after her surgery, she was still, like, holding on to her side and barely getting around. She just had a fucking organ taken out of her. Right. So she shows up, Michael's holding on to their three-year-old, and Renee later told her friend that Michael threw their three-year-old child at her and she fell to the ground. So it's like, no wonder why she's fucking scared of you. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. (sighs) Yeah, so investigators realized that Michael had both the means and the motive to commit Renee's murder. So they decided to approach him just hours after the discovery of her body. At this time, Michael was staying with his mother since Renee was rewarded the house in their divorce hearing. But when they show up, they ask to speak to him and he's not home. His mom answers the door and lets officers inside. And she tells them that Michael had spent the previous night at her house with his children. And she said that it was a quiet night, but she remembered that she heard the sliding door open around two or three o'clock in the morning. But she thought that it was just Michael letting the dog out and rolled over and went back to sleep. So that was kind of interesting. I'm glad that she didn't, like, hide that. Yeah, so Michael shows up while the police are there and he immediately demands an attorney. The sergeant who... I read that he, like, handed over a card with this attorney's number on it. Ugh, how pretentious. I know. But either way, whatever one it is, like, that's the... That's, that's, a, that's a great response. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the sergeant, Sergeant Johnson, he said, quote, he didn't want to know anything about her condition, didn't want to know what happened, just stated that he would prefer to talk to an attorney, end quote. That makes you look so innocent, Michael. Like, I get, yeah, you want an attorney, but for that to be the, like, the first fucking thing. They haven't even told you, yeah, like, you don't even want to know what happened to her? Like, the mother of my children yeah. is dead, but, like, eh, just... Just give me an attorney. Yeah. Okay. So, once he gets his attorney, this... His attorney tries to say that police know that Michael's innocent and that the only reason they're focused on him specifically is because they don't have any other leads. Okay. And supposedly, Michael has an airtight alibi. He was at his mother's house, which is, like, ten miles away. And he was there, like, playing with his children. That's his alibi. So his attorney thinks pretty much they're only focusing on him as the killer because it's the only suspect they have, but that's not actually true. Um, I was reading that that sergeant, Sergeant Johnson, also questioned the man that lived Mm. on the property. Right. I guess they had, like, a pole barn out back. 
was with a loft. Right. Yeah. So this man rented out this pole barn um, on Renee's property. He was there the night that she was killed. So he was brought in for an interview and um, Sergeant Johnson talks about how, like, this man jumped through every single hoop. He was nothing but cooperative, as was everyone else that they called in for questioning. Except for... Except for Michael. Right. So, through his attorney, Michael denies any involvement in Renee's murder and says that he's just as worried as everyone else that there's a killer out there. I'm rolling my eyes so hard right now. He fears for his own safety. Oh, shut up. Poor Michael. Some people think that Renee's friends and family have taken things too far. Because, I mean, if Michael really is innocent, they're pretty much, like, ruining his life. You know? I'll pretend to care. They, I guess, you know, they made really public accusations that he's her murderer. Mm -hmm. And... While Michael won't talk to police about anything related to Renee's death, he has complained to the police about what he calls harassment from Renee's friends. His idea of harassment, you might be asking. Oh my god, what? (sighs) He was receiving scripture cards in the mail. And his family and him felt that he was being harassed because of that. So much so that he says he was forced to move out of his neighborhood. Because he was getting scripture? Like. Mail? Sir, I get that. Do you have a guilty (laughs) conscience? Like, why is that? Wow, what a fucking loser. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, he moves out of the area that I don't know. I don't know if he was at his mom's when that was happening or somewhere else. He's moved well, around. Well, he doesn't have a stable job, so my guess is that right. yeah. his mom's. Where are the children, by the way? Huh? Where are the children? They're with him. Boy. He has custody of the children now. Boy, boy, boy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he moves out of the area that he's in and then moves into my neighborhood. <laughs> which is crazy because when I was younger, like, I used to be really into running, which I know it's hard to believe now, but... <laughs> Um, one of the routes that I used to take was just, like, up the road, and there's this little neighborhood road that loops around back to the main road. My parents were very adamant about me not taking a certain turn mm-hmm. down that road because it's where he lived. Mm-hmm. And, like, everyone in the neighborhood yeah, knew, like, you like, know. fucking stay away from this. Yeah. But, yeah, so he moved around quite a bit, um... I don't think he stayed there long, but I don't know. I was pretty young. So, yeah, these reports of this harassment, police actually look into it because they're like, I guess we have to do our fucking job. This is stupid. And even they're like, okay, sir, you're being a bit dramatic. (laughs) So, um, yeah, there's that. They did get a warrant to search his home, but they didn't find anything that linked him to the crime. The murder weapon still wasn't found. There was never any DNA matched. And police even call in Michael's brother, Charles, for questioning. Which, I heard Charles's uh, nickname is Bo. Bo. But we're not going to call him that. For the sake of my child. Please. 
I don't. Want, I, I can't. I don't ever want to. Nope. Charles. 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 So Charles, just like his brother, he supposedly has an airtight alibi. So he was cleared. So for years, the case sat untouched as detectives continued to search for clues or leads until they finally received a breakthrough. And it comes from Michael's brother. Yeah, when I read that, I was like, what? Because, like, I guess Charles didn't even go to their wedding because... Yeah, he 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 didn't didn't like Renee. Right, so there was all this tension. So after she was murdered, they, like, rekindled their Mm -hmm. relationship. Yeah. And... So I I love that it comes, like, full circle, though, in the sense that, like, he's trying to help solve her murder, even though he, for some reason, hated her so much he wouldn't even support their marriage, which is, like, what could this woman have possibly done to you? She donated her fucking kidney to a stranger, and you have a problem with her? What type of person are you, Charles? Son of a bitch. (laughs) So, um, a message came in on... To her friend. Her friend's website, Chris Crandall. Yeah. They have this website dedicated to Renee Mm -hmm. and the case. And the message was from Michael's brother, Charles, requesting the chance to have a talk. Renee's friend, Chris, she contacts police as soon as she sees the message. Mm -hmm. And they... See, I don't know if they set up, like, set it up to have her record the conversation or if she just did that of her own free will and then turned it over to police. I heard from what I read and what I understood is that she contacted the police and had them do, like, like surveillance right, on the phone call. Right. Okay, that's what I thought, too, but I didn't want to... I mean, that's that's how I understood it, but, you know, it's me, so who knows. Well, I only saw it in one place. So I didn't want to, like, you know, say it. Makes sense to me, though. Yeah, yeah. So in that conversation, Charles, he didn't want to say too much information, but he did say that he was afraid of his brother. And he, it seemed like he was scared that he would pretty much face the same fate as Renee. He said that he was afraid that he was going to be Michael's next 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 victim. victim. Yeah. Keyword there. Right. So Charles is called in for another interview with police. And during during his first interview with police back in 2006, Charles admitted that he didn't have a great relationship with Renee. Like you said, he refused to go to their wedding. Mm -hmm. He didn't approve of his brother marrying her. (laughs) But then after the divorce, the two of them became buddy-buddy again. And I guess during that first interview, his alibi was that he was, like, he's a truck driver. Mm -hmm. So I guess he was on the other side of the state Mm. when this happened. Um, And then he said when he got home from his route, he went out to dinner with friends before calling it a night. And the next morning, he went canoeing with his daughter. But in this interview, he has a lot more to say. He revealed to police that his brother Michael was, in fact... The killer, and that he had even shown him the murder weapon before throwing it away. That, the way he fucking does it, mm. just mm-hmm. 
pulls it out and what does he say like this, this is was- how i finalized my divorce yeah that's what he says I'm like okay that's i'm telling you there's something not right about this man <laughs> there and there's a lot not right <sighs> yeah so he claimed he he did sign an official statement mm-hmm. with everything he knew he claimed that in 2011 he and Michael had been sitting in a car together, having some drinks and looking out at a river, when all of a sudden, Michael took a bag out, mm-hmm. and inside of this bag was a knife wrapped in a cloth. Michael turned to Charles and said, quote, this is how I finalized my divorce, end quote. And then proceeds to throw it into the river. Well, so Charles said that... Like, he was genuinely shocked. Yeah, because, because he believed, he believed his, brother. his brother. He was publicly defending him. Yeah. And Michael threw the knife into the river because he was mad about his reaction. <sighs> like, like he was just keeping, uh, like, she, he was holding onto the knife as, like, a trophy almost. Like, I, I don't I, know. I, I have no idea. very odd. And is he, like, he's so excited to share this news after all this time that he expects his brother is going to be like, I fucking knew it was you! Like, what what do you expect somebody to... Oh, you fooled me, bro! (laughs) Right, right. Like, what is going on in your head that you are surprised by this reaction? Nothing good. (laughs) So, yeah, um, after telling all of this to police, Charles agreed to lead them to the murder weapon. And if they found it, then obviously that would be a huge break in the case. So they searched the bottom of the river where he supposedly threw this knife for three days before they found it. And after the knife was recovered, the police finally had the evidence they needed to arrest Michael for the murder of his ex-wife, Renee. Police arrest Michael in February of 2020, 14 years after Renee's death and charged him with first-degree murder and felony murder. He he agreed to this guilty plea. But then in May of that same year, during his hearing, he had a big surprise for everyone in the courtroom. Michael claimed that his brother Charles was responsible. Right. Because he had hired him to carry out the attack. He said that he made sure that he wasn't at the scene so he could establish his alibi. He's so smart. Oh my god. You know, nobody's ever thought of that before. No. He. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't with this man. He just makes me so angry. He only accepted responsibility for her murder under the guise that he wasn't actually the one who carried it out. (laughs) But police say there's absolutely no evidence that suggests that anyone other than Michael did this. Like, yeah, Charles didn't like her, but, like, to stab her 50 times seems like he maybe needed a little bit more hatred than just your casual don't like my sister-in-law yeah i would say so just a thought i don't know (laughs) like what i feel like it would be a little bit less personal like a gun or something i don't know yeah i agree it's just bullshit it is and to throw your brother under the bus like that yeah like like, what a shit bag he really is like he is 
He's he's um I don't even Scum. He does he doesn't even deserve my very intelligent vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> Anything I could conjure up he doesn't deserve it. True that. It's too much energy mm-hmm. into thinking about. So with his children behind him, he pleaded guilty to second degree murder, a sentence that carries at least a 25 year term. So I didn't really understand that at first because I'm not like super smart, but the judge, George Quist, which we love this judge, right? Because hey, he George. told, oh no, he's not the divorce judge, but we oh. still love this judge. Okay. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> Doesn't really matter, but we love him. <laughs> so um, George Quist, he said that he didn't give Michael a life sentence because under the guidelines for a second degree murder conviction... A life sentence means that he would be eligible for parole after only 15 years. Barf. So by giving him this 25 to 50 year sentence, it makes sure that Michael wouldn't be eligible for parole until he's at least 80 years old. Smart. Right. So I'm like, I'm glad you have that figured out. Mm -hmm. He was given the chance to speak during his trial in which he blamed, quote, the stress of the divorce and custody battle. Right, because everyone who gets divorced savagely murders their partner. Yeah. You know. Yeah. He also said that he just wasn't in his right mind. You know. That's... I believe that. So I heard this part, and then I was a little confuzzled. So he asked his wife, children, family, and friends for forgiveness while quoting the Gospel of Matthew, saying... Wait, 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 but wasn't he being harassed by scripture? (laughs) You're right. You're right. Well, what I was confused about was he's asking his wife for forgiveness. Renee? His ex-wife, Renee? Or did he get remarried? I couldn't find anything on that. Was it ever, like, was it finalized, not through the fucking knife, but, like, in the courts? Yeah. It was. It was finalized, like, I want to say seven weeks before she was murdered. And that's the time where the judge was like, nope, she's not paying you alimony, blah, blah, blah. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know who he's referring to there. I mean, I'm assuming Renee. Yeah. But. So he says, quote, before you ask God for forgiveness, ask for forgiveness from those you've offended. I am truly sorry. I have greatly sinned. End quote. That's all he has to say? That's, yeah, that's, I guess so. Their daughter, Sarah, wrote a letter that was read aloud by Judge Quist, and part of it said, quote, Since I was young, the case of the death of my mom, Renee Pagel, has been the source of indescribable pain. I've lacked the relationship with a mother that every child has a right to. This is truly a situation that is impossible to understand without being in the position that my siblings and I have endured, are currently, and will continue to carry with us for the rest of our lives. Regardless of my dad's involvement, it is impossible for anyone to say that he didn't do an incredible job raising Joel, Hannah, and myself. I was never able to have the relationship I should have had with my mom, but had a relationship with my dad that I still value more than anything end quote. That would be really hard. I don't know what I would 
I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, that, I mean, I can't imagine being in her situation. Well, it reminds me of the Miche Solomon mm. case that we covered. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. she's grown up without her mom because she was taken from her by her, like, it. her mom would still be in her life if it weren't for her father. Right. But. She has a good relationship. You have a great relationship with your dad. And, you know, there's something to be said about the unconditional love of parents, like child to parent. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what is that case? Gabriel? Like one of the worst. Gabriel Fernandez? Yeah. I was like, just, that is so weird that you bring that up. I was literally just thinking about that today. I can listen to it a lot. I I have yet to really dive into that, but um, I have been listening to Invisible Choir, like, recently, and they have an episode called The Boy in the Cupboard, mm. and I, like, I just, I haven't dove in, but um, from what I've gathered and heard from little bits and pieces here and there, like, it is, it's horrible. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that I heard is that he still had love for his parents. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, just to be put through all of that and still love them. Like, yeah, it's just that weird nature. It is. It's like... <sighs> I don't know. It's these types of situations. It seems like it always leaves the children really torn. Yeah. Especially like in this case, she has, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that Michael has convinced all of his children that he's innocent, that he would never do that. You know, he's lied to them for 14 years. That's a long time. Yeah. And that would it would be really hard to accept yeah. you know you've lost your mother and your father like you're going to right exactly like if you have the ability to have a good relationship with the one parent you have left yeah why wouldn't you right and she was only 7 when it happened when her mom was killed so that's i feel like that's a really formative age too yeah And she was also, in the interview, she was talking about, like, how her and her siblings didn't even really understand the situation until they were already 13 or 14 years old. Wow. And she also, she was talking about, like, how every single internet search that she came across about her mom's death listed her father as... Like, the number one suspect. The suspect. And that that was really hard on her. Oh my gosh. I cannot, I cannot imagine. Yeah. Right. Because what, 2005, the internet is still like up and coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the older you get, the more you hear around town and the more you Google and the more you find. Yeah. It's like, I, that's. Especially like you're living with him after that and he's your sole caretaker. Right. So, um, I wonder if he gets visited. Yeah, that that would be interesting to know. Probably would be my assumption. 
Yeah, probably. I feel like it's, like, how do you just cut ties with I mean, a person overnight? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's just a really, it's really hard to separate, like. He's my dad and I love he's him. He's my dad. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just that. It's just that thing that yeah. you're talking about, that nature that's mm-hmm. built into us, I mm-hmm. guess. It's very interesting. Yeah. Another thing I think is interesting is that Renee, before her death, actually told her friends on multiple occasions that if something were to happen to her, then it was Michael who did it. Jesus Christ. When... I feel like that happens a lot. A lot more than people realize. And that's... That's terrifying. It is. It is. Like, in the days leading up to her death, too... She was telling, she was telling one of her friends, I think it was Joyce, that there were like weird things that were going on mm-hmm. around the property, like the water being left on and stuff like that, just random. And it's almost like she knew that something was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously and she like, did. To sleep over that night. Right. That sleep over murdered. that night that she was murdered is, it makes you wonder like what, was what's like, happening. Right beforehand like the fact that she made that comment of he's gonna come to the hospital and do something to me while i'm in my surgery like what that's leading up to that i just wanted to know like what gave her that feeling that something bad was gonna happen right that's very interesting yeah like intuition just your subconscious like i think so (sighs) but yeah um i came across (sighs) A picture that Michael had set as his profile picture on Facebook for a while. It was him um, with a child on, like, a mission trip in Africa. What a good soul. Wow. (laughs) So selfless. But I want to close with this. Um, I thought it'd be just cool to see, like, what the man who received Renee's kidney had to you say. You know what? I was wondering. I'm so sick and glad he looked into that. Yeah. So, he was kind of reminiscing mm-hmm. about the moments in the hospital leading up to his procedure. He said that Renee was across from him in the hallway of the hospital. Mm-hmm. He gave her a thumbs up, and she said, I'll see you later, buddy. <laughs> and that was the last time. That he spoke to her. her. Every year since her death, Renee's friends have always held, like, a celebration of life. Mm -hmm. And even though he, this man, um, was a stranger to Renee, he started attending them. And at one of those meetings, he spoke about what Renee meant to him because she ultimately saved his life. I guess it all kind of started, like, I was interested to see, like how she found out about, like, this man that, Mm -hmm. you know, he's a stranger to her. I know it's through her student or whatever, but this guy's daughter was a student of Renee's, and she's, like, Renee was such a good teacher that she started to notice a pattern in this girl's writing topics. So she pulled her aside, and that's when she learned about her father suffering renal failure. And Renee, in in turn, told her that she planned on being tested as a possible match. So this man, at at the first celebration of life that he 
went to for Renee, he said, quote, I was just dumbfounded that someone would want to do that. It really shocked me because here it was, a total stranger asking if she could help me. And I think, honestly, that's just like the, like the slogan for her life type of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just selflessness. Yeah. So, on that note, it's always the husband. <laughs> I need to make a t-shirt. I'm, I feel like there's got to be t-shirts out there. There has to be. I feel like I've seen them. Probably. Okay. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I just a friendly reminder, if you have any listener tales, fucking send them over, please. Listenertales at gmail.com. Listenertales at gmail.com. And that's for anyone. I feel like we got just a lot of people here from the US of A, but... We did have Hong Australia Kong. on yeah, there, too. you're right. Yeah. There's a lot of other... I I did see that our patron, Coffin Sir Lee, sent us their story. I haven't read through it yet, but I'm very <gasps> excited about that. So, shout out to Coffin Sir Lee. And uh, we're going to have a mini episode going up here pretty soon mm-hmm. on our it's Patreon. It's very interesting. It's, it's also a true crime story. Also... Um, Picked by yours truly. Mm-hmm. Thank you all so much for being here, and remember to always, always keep, keep it, it spooky. spooky.